So the Heritage Foundation has issued an important report on direct primary care just this week, July 4th week. Here are a few of its highlights. A family of four can save on average $17,000 plus with cost sharing plan paired with it. Cost sharing plan be like a Sidera, like the previous guest we've had. So America is fueled by hourly workers and two thirds are one medical bill away from ruin, according to Gallup polls. So thank you, high deductible healthcare. But if you are looking at one medical bill away from ruin, that means that these folks are what we call functionally uninsured. And I did a little bit of math and we have, I think somewhere between 130 and 150 million functionally uninsured Americans. I didn't take the two thirds number of all the 185 million workers, I just took half. And then I added to that the uninsured population, which has been 30 million forever. And then I also added in the 10 million unemployed. And uh, if you can't find a job in this economy, you can't find a job. But if you take those numbers and you throw in Medicare and Medicaid populations, which is about 124 million, and throw in another 19 or 20 million for veterans and defense, you're looking at basically somewhere between 40 and 60 million of us are in wealth care, and the rest of America seems to be uh, this, what I call this 130 million in poor care or sick care or transaction care. And so they are functionally uninsured. Well, what is the answer? You know what the answer is going to be because we're going to talk about it today. So let's get back to the Heritage Report because it had some other interesting things. DPC, direct primary care, was associated with reduced ER department utilization by 40% because the DPC model leads to more primary care face time. Well, if you got more face time with your doc, that's like wearing a seatbelt or giving up cigarettes, uh, we know. So again, just DPC being a subscription model, you don't have to pay co-pays or deductibles anymore. You now have a lot more face time with the doc. And then they threw in a case study by a former guest of ours, Carl Schusler, who walked us through the DeSoto Memorial Hospital, which achieved a 54% reduction in their health plan spending, which is over a million two year one, it was a million six year two while eliminating all the co-pays and all the deductibles, as I said earlier, for an employee and their out-of-pocket costs basically went to nothing and it lowered the employee premiums by 20%. So remember when, when we set up these plans with direct primary care, we don't always have a pure rip the bandaid off approach. Sometimes they'll keep in the old PPO or the old HMO. So not everybody switches over all at once. They do it slowly. So these savings were achieved in a population that has the slowest, second lowest median family income in the state of Florida. Uh, and again, as, as I said, a previous guest walked us through the numbers here, but what they did essentially from 20,000 feet is DeSoto was a rural hospital about to close. They were just financially bankrupt essentially, but by contracting with the local county and the city, the school district, the local pharmacy, they were able to direct contract and save the hospital by getting out the middlemen, the bucas. And 50 million Americans live in rural areas. And if we can save hospitals in all of these rural areas, that saves a rural economy, it saves a county, it saves a region, because when the hospital closes, that's sort of you know pillar one of a three pillar crash. So basically getting back to the Heritage Foundation, um, Congress should allow, this is a recommendation. They had a lot of good ones, but this is my favorite one. Congress should allow DPC practices to contract directly with Medicare recipients without needing to opt out of Medicare. So Maine has addressed this issue by allowing this, but what they're saying is if you have a Medicare or a TRICARE or Medicaid patient, and you also are, have them on a subscription model, you might be tempted to double dip. So you've got to opt out of this federal largesse by saying, I'm not going to see any of those patients. Well, again, it's a real burden for some DPC because they also moonlight in the evenings and do some medical directorships and they do some other, maybe they work at the VA. 
but you, they can't do that if they have to opt out. They're basically giving up their ability to bill. So it's, it's a good rule. It's a good recommendation. I'm really glad to see this Heritage Foundation come out. It's been taking years to get this going. And Dr. Gross was on our show with the DPC Coalition, put it all together. And so it's, and of course, he was involved with the DeSoto Memorial story. So he had firsthand. But um, anyway, our, today's guest is of that genre. He's an, a benefits engineer that is basically real, not only rebuilding primary care, where all his clients live, but he's rebuilding the whole healthcare ecosystem with the foundation of primary care. So I want to welcome an award-winning benefits engineer to our show, David Contorno. Thank you, Ron. Happy to be here. Yeah, there's so much to talk about. I, where do you want to get started? I'm going to let you kind of go because you've seen this from every angle. Um, what, what type of employers are you starting to find are waking up to this new model? I got to tell you, the employers that have embraced this the most, and it, it, doesn't work any better in this environment. I think it's the mindset of the employer that recognizes the pain point is just too high in the current environment, tends to be smaller, a few hundred employees, uh, blue or gray collar, and family owned. And the reason I think those metrics uh, buy into a different way of doing things the most is I think as an organization, those companies tend to run on tighter profit margins. I think if each employee maintained their own P&L, and we know most people aren't sophisticated enough to do that, they too would be running on tighter margins than the average American. And I think third, and I think probably most importantly, is in those family-owned businesses, the uh, owners, the decision makers are not sitting in a perch in an ivory tower somewhere. They're down in the fields. Maybe they were working the trenches alongside the other guys and gals at one point, and maybe it was the son and now he's running it, but he knows the employees' names. He was one of the employees. He knows their spouses and their children. That really has been the metric of employer that has just said enough is enough of the status quo, and I'm going to be brave enough to try something different. You know, through the miracle of the microphone, I've discovered that what you said I thought was true, blue and gray collar is actually turning into more white collar because there are companies that have large uh, patient bases like Premise Health with 11 million, Medici has 13 million. There's several that have a million like Crossover Health. They've got uh, LinkedIn and they've got, uh, there's one medical that has Apple, Facebook's in the game now, Google's in the game. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, Amazon, the mighty Amazon now is using their fulfillment centers with Crossover Health clinics. So these, these direct primary care really are now scaling with a corporate backbone, also still often run by doctors, which is the right way to do it, but they're, they're scaling with these large tech companies that can't retain employees. Talk about retention and attraction once you have this model in place. Well, I will tell you that when we've put this model in place for employers, we typically offer to the employee population a, a plan where you have to go through the DPC home for everything except emergencies, of course, and then what we call an open network plan where you can really see any provider. And the first metric that surprised me as we did this was the percentage of people that willingly chose the DPC plan, because in a lot of ways, we set it up like a gated HMO plan to, to, to steer people through the DPC. Um, and everyone has to change doctors if they choose that plan. But on average, the first year we do that type of setup, we typically get between 40 and 60% of people to take the DPC plan. Because it's that free. Only, it's no it copay, only, no premium, no deductible. No, it's free, exactly, right? yeah. exactly. But that number only goes up in subsequent years. And the reason is because the, listen, you know, healthcare, I think, is probably one of the few industries that has net promoter scores worse than cable companies. So let's admit that the bar of impressing people in healthcare is or should be pretty low. But the 
overwhelmingly positive feedback we get from those patients once they engage with the direct primary care provider is off the charts. They are amazed at how much time a doctor is willing to spend with them. They are amazed that they're not just sending them out the door with a script and a referral to a high-cost specialist. They're amazed when they sit down and talk with them about their nutrition. I mean, I know when I had my intake with my DPC, he spent two hours. And I'll tell you one question that he asked me that I found very interesting that no other doctor has ever asked before. And the second he asked it, I was like, that kind of makes sense. It's something that my doctor should know. And it was, do you have any guns in the house? That's, that question surprised me. But then when I thought about it, like you dramatically increase the likelihood of being shot if you have a gun in the house, statistically. That's a good thing for your doctor to know just in case it were to occur. So little things like that. And, and it's just- Yeah, the, what he didn't tell you had sons of juvenile delinquent. That's what he <laughs> yeah. Okay, he's, they're targeting you, man. That's right. It's, well, I, well, I, so I'd ask about retention and attraction. Is anyone tar- tracking- tracking those numbers because my uh, retention went like to hundred percent. Nobody wants to leave a company with free healthcare. Yeah. My attraction, I used to have to need to interview dozens of people to find a good MA. And now I can do it with one interview, two interviews, because the best people want free healthcare. We do track turnover with some of our clients, not all. Um, now, some of them were like in the restaurant business where they had 140% turnover every year, and now they're at 50 or 60%, which for some industries, that would be awful. But for them, that was really fantastic. Uh, we had a municipality that had zero turnover on the DPC plan, not on the other plan, interestingly enough. So yeah, we definitely see a, a big uptick in that. And their ability to... So one of the things that DPC does, and, and you mentioned this in the opening is it lowers costs and definitely we need to talk about that i do want to talk at some point though about the improvement in clinical state of the employee the patient also because that is really important but the the when you when when we're able to build that plan and have it up and running for a couple of years and all of a sudden the member has no out of pocket and on top of that we've reduced total cost by so much that the employer can now pick up a much larger percentage of the cost or sometimes even 100% it gets employers to the point where they can say we not only offer a plan where you have no out of pocket when you use it but you also have nothing coming out of your paycheck when you're enrolled in it. And that's just unheard of in today's environment, even in unions, even in teachers' jobs where they expect high level of benefits because the pay is not as great. This still beats, beats those. I'm going to challenge you to think a little differently about what you just said. I love everything you said, by the way, but you said sometimes they choose to pay some of it and sometimes they choose all of it. You're sort of the employer's doctor. You're, you're diagnosing the problem. You're putting a prescription together to fix it with this reassembled plan. Mm-hmm. I think you should insist as their engineer, as their doctor and their engineer, you pay a hundred percent. You'll recover this every time. There's nobody that has not recovered that cost, but you should pay hundred percent. The, I would go, I would I'd become close to that. I'd say pay 95%. And the reason I think there should be a little bit of skin in the game is for two reasons. One is I think people value stuff they pay for a little okay. bit. And That's secondly, yeah. I don't want, let's say a husband and wife and the both 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 of them work in a full-time job at two different companies both are offered health insurance why should one employer carry the weight of the other spouse when the spouse has a plan available to them through their job and some employees will double dip and that makes things confusing and actually yes. makes coverage more difficult so i think just having a little bit is is a good idea but certainly a much higher percentage than what most employers are doing today okay now you said you've got to give up your doctor do you get a lot of pushback from the employees on that We do. And listen, my whole approach with employers and to a lesser extent, but still to some extent employees is to make them uncomfortable because I believe that people don't change until the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. And I remember one time uh, when we, when we, uh, 
launch a direct primary care plan, we actually bring the doctor to the open enrollment meetings. And that's a really important thing. And so I had this doctor there. He was able to talk about how credentialed he is. He's been a, a professor at Tufts University in this one situation I'm thinking of. Very entrenched in the community, been a primary care doctor for 30 years. And she said that one employee said, well, who are you going to refer me to? And I stepped in and I said, well, I need to know your age, your gender, your comorbidities, exactly what you're going to, because we, we don't just refer you to an orthopedist, we refer you to the right orthopedist for you based on your situation and time. And she says, well, who is that going to be? How do I know they're good? And I said, that's a really good question. How do you know the doctors you're going to on your own are good? And her response was, well, I go to their website. I said, okay, so you look at their self-reported bio. I mean, if they were, if they graduated last in medical school, do you think that's going to be on their self-reported bio? I said, I don't think that's a really good judge of quality. And I started to tell them how we look at quality. I think the, the, the point I'm trying to make is most people judge a doctor's quality on bedside manner and not on actually how good of a doctor they are. And when you start to look at the quality of doctors and really the doctors that have been brave enough to step out of the traditional fee-for-service space where they have basically guaranteed income, guaranteed patients. They come to them. They don't need to look for them. They don't need to talk about money or cost. It takes a really brave, bold type of provider and doctor to do that. And the difference in the type of care that they give is just night and day different. And so when we talk about this to the employees and they start to wake up to the fact that they can actually be doing in healthcare what they do everywhere else, which is compare cost and quality and find wherever that value intersection is, I think it speaks to a lot of people. And I think that's why people are so willing to go with a doctor that was at their employee open enrollment meeting, which is uncommon. Uh, now they have a face and they can build a real relationship with someone who's avail much more available to them than the traditional primary care doctor. Okay. So we've talked about the soft fuzzies of patients are definitely happier. They're not going to leave once they joined this movement. We also know that the employers are happy because no employer of yours has ever gone backwards and said, I can't wait to get back with Blue Cross. And then the second, the third, so that the third party would be the doctors. We don't have data on this, but we know from DPC conferences that they're the happiest conferences in America in primary care because everybody's free of EHR. They're free of lost autonomy. They're free of burnout. Um, let's talk about outcomes and cost, which you mentioned earlier. What, what can you tell us about, first of all, outcomes, then we'll get to cost. Yeah, I mean, I, there's just story after story, but um, I can tell you of people who have had multiple back surgeries and, you know, of course, the primary care incentive, normal primary care, and it just incentivizes them to get out of the office as quick as possible and refer them to, uh, you know, and I don't know if you've spoken this on prior podcasts, Ron, but I think it's important to understand how the traditional doctor is compensated financially for, for their work. And there's, of course, a bunch of metrics, but one of the ones that I think is really damaging is, is known as an RVU or a relative value unit, which is a measurement of how much revenue that doctor is generating in other parts of the healthcare system that he works for or his healthcare system is partnered with. So they maximize their own income by getting you out of the office as quick as possible so they can see as many patients in a day as possible and sending you to where the highest cost care is most likely to occur. And the problem with that is that's typically not in the interest of the patient, either financially or clinically. And so when you have a primary care doctor that doesn't have those incentives and your back is hurting, and so they send you to a proper physical therapist first because there is no financial incentive, that's why we see back surgeries go down so dramatically. We see people who are taking, you know, the number one revenue drug in the country is the Humeris of the world. And that's largely counteracting what it is that we're putting into our own body. And when you have a doctor that can take the time to learn that patient, understand why they're struggling with their diet or with nutrition and make suggestions and monitor them and follow up and check in with them. 
I mean, they often can get off of those medications. So I've seen people get off of migraine medications and opioids and diabetes medications. I mean, the list goes on and on and on to where it, I think the biggest value that a DPC doctor has to offer their patients is time. So if y'all are listening to all of my shows, you heard Catherine Jacobson Raymond, who wrote the authoritative book on backs, uh, the back, we'll call it the, it's really kind of a scam, but the industry that 95% of back fusions are unnecessary. Your back resolves itself in time. Um, and then you also heard Al Lewis say the same number uh, from Quizify that 95% of all back surgeries are largely unnecessary. They resolve themselves in time. So what you're saying is utilization goes down, overuse, overtesting, expensive testing, hospital internal testing, all that goes down because the DPC doctor doesn't see or have an incentive or really the pressure for their RVUs. Um, okay, well, let's talk about the cost. If you're going instead to the hospital imaging or the hospital lab, instead you're going to an independent lab or a direct contracted imaging, you're going to save a little bit of money, aren't you? Not a little bit in many cases. Um, so the way most of our plans are set up is that if you choose the DPC plan and the DPC refers you or even the open access plan and you allow our concierge team to help guide you to where the quality is high and the price is reasonable, then we waive out of pockets for the members. They pay nothing, no deductible, no copay, nothing. So we're, the plan is bearing the full cost of that MRI, for example. And you can get an MRI, of, I mean, <laughs> at the Sutter Health System out in California, I've seen MRIs $12,000 or $14,000. I would say the average hospital-based is probably between $1,800 and maybe $4,000, $4,200. Um, but we have a, a, a network of independent radiology centers across the country, and our average MRI price is two fifty to four hundred bucks. So, even with deductible and coinsurance thrown in there, it's still in the employer's advantage to pay one hundred percent of it. Yeah, if you like what you just heard, Kristen Dickerson has been on the show. Uh, has she? She regularly publishes Green Imaging. If you want to follow them on LinkedIn, uh, case studies, and you can see these numbers are true. It's ridiculous. Um, and let's talk about surgery. So, if you get referred in the network to surgery. You're going to have the same kind of numbers saved, right? It's it's even bigger on surgery, um, at least dollar-wise, because the dollars are typically bigger. And I'll give you an example. My wife, who um, some people in the industry know as well, because she's also my business partner, her name is Emma, and she needed a hysterectomy. And I find this to be a really fascinating example, because the average, uh, there's 550,000 hysterectomies done in the U.S. each year. There's 58,000 OBGYNs. That means that the average OB does eight or nine hysterectomies a year. Now, I'm not a big sports guy, but, and this is a little bit of a dated analogy, but Tiger Woods, he won the Masters last year, right? I asked people, do you think he practiced eight or nine times a year to get back to the top of professional sports? Of course not. Like eight or nine times a week he practiced, right? So the problem with the normal OBGYN is because they do so few, they rely on the techniques they learned in medical school, which is typically open. Uh, open is obviously higher infection rates, longer recovery times, typically requires opioids. The uh, alternative to that is a laparoscopic surgery. The laparoscopic surgery is far less time under the knife, far smaller incisions, generally no opioids needed. It's an outpatient procedure. And uh, But here, think about this dynamic for a second. If the average OBGYN even wanted to do laparoscopic. They have to invest dozens and dozens of hours of training, hundreds of thousands of dollars in additional equipment, and then the normal insurance plan sees that as a less invasive procedure, so their reimbursement is lower. Why would they go through all that for eight or nine times a year? They wouldn't. So we have a network 
of gynecological surgeons, each of whom do three or 400 hysterectomies a year. They all have 95 plus percent laparoscopic rates. And we have a prearranged, pre-negotiated price of $11,000, all bundled. So if there's a, a mistake and a readmission, it's on them, versus the national average of $38,000 for a hysterectomy. I asked Keith Smith of Surgery Center of Oklahoma on the show, what kind of complications do you have? And he goes, why would I ever have complications if I know what I'm doing? Yep. Same thing. And you're talking to a patient of Dr. Keith Smith. I had my inguinal hernia repaired there a few years ago. And at the time I had Blue Cross and Blue Shield. I don't anymore, but it was cheaper for me to push my Blue Cross and Blue Shield card aside, pay for cash, pay for travel, than my deductible and out-of-pocket alone would have been had I had it done locally. I, I love hearing those stories. Um, so you're invited on the show, David, anytime, any place. If you ever want to bring one of your clients, you know, a 300 person employer on board and tell their side of the story, because of course, they're not only going to sing your praises, but they're going to, so they'll never go back. They, we've had three guests, including the famous Rosen hotel. So we had those folks on telling us their amazing story, how they use the dividend to not only grow debt free, but to turn around the worst crime ridden drug infested neighborhoods surrounding their hotel in Orlando. And now they have a matriculation rate for college in that neighborhood equal to the highest 10% uh, quartile uh, incomes in America, neighborhoods in America. And they've and now I, adopted a neighborhood five times that size. Well, and I got to tell you, I had the privilege of maybe five or six years ago to go down and visit with Harris Rosen and his team. And he was one of the people that put in my head that the employer that really cares about their employees are the ones that are willing to do this. And I'll tell you why. He was at the time 82 or maybe 84 years old. And we walked through the lobby of his flagship hotel, which is called Shingle Creek. And there was a woman who was um, sweeping the floor in front of the elevator. And he walked up to her and goes, Maria, how are you doing today? How's your husband, Jose? How's little Johnny? Like he knew their whole family. And I was just beside myself. Well, there's no turnover. He has 17%. The industry is yep. 75. Yep. Yeah. He's, he does know them. I went to a bartender. I was staying there and there's this magazine on my you know, dresser as I checked in the hotel. I didn't know anything about Rosen Hotels. And it has this picture of this, I thought, egotistical bastard. And it turns out, no, he's they start reading his story and he's done the amazing things for the local community and poured the dividends he's received from this model into, a. I mean, they used to have to collect needles in the parking lot in the playground of the elementary school there because that's where all the people were shooting up after buying their drugs. And none of that's, they don't have any gangs there anymore. Crime is negligible. It's just... You talk about a turnaround and then they're now on second and third generation employees of people that started working there. So if you're not losing your employees, of course, you're going to know Maria's name sweeping the floor. That's right. That's yeah. right. And I, I, I'm going to give you a little um, data on the cost because we the first time we did a direct primary care plan was for a 2200 employee municipality in South Carolina. Um, the doctor involved there was Dr. Shane Purcell and his partner, Amy Cianzolo. And at the end of the first year, we had reduced their total spend by 22%. Now, in that model, we offered both a DPC-only plan and an any provider plan to, to all the employees. And we had about 48% choose the DPC plan. Now, for any of you on this that know how health plans are built, then what you should understand is that if you look at those two plan options, the DPC plan and the open access plan, both have a similar set of fixed costs. Both have administration fees. Both have stop loss premiums that are the same. Um, both have to pay claims. But on top of that, the DPC plan has to pay another 50, 60, 70, 80 bucks a month per person, per belly button for the DPC membership fee. And this was in rural South Carolina, so it was a little less expensive. In some urban areas, it could be 100 or 150 bucks, but that's what it was there. So in order for me to just break even, 
for this client. I have to reduce claims by at least the amount of that membership fee on the DPC plan. But not only was total spend down 22%, but even with that additional fee, even though the direct primary care plan people were paying zero out of pocket, the total cost was still 16% less than the other people. So, do, you, do you use national partners for pharmacy? I want to talk about medication costs too, or do yeah. you use local partners? How do you do that? We do both. So the, the first thing is that we got to talk about the evil pharmacy benefit managers. And they are just, I mean, gosh, we talk about how doctors are paid on this. We talk about how uh, hospitals make money, how insurance companies make money. But all of that pales in comparison, I think, to the, the ugliness that goes on the, the PBM side. And so the first thing is, is you got to get the right PBM. And, and we believe it's one that is 100% transparent on 100% of their book of business. So they're prohibited from spread pricing. And I, again, I don't know the level of people listening to this, but that is, that is the biggest reason why drugs cost so much is spread pricing. They're prohibited from taking any of the rebates. They're prohibited from clawbacks and, and some of those games. That's the first thing. The second thing is, how do they get paid? Most PBMs get paid not only with those backend things that I just mentioned, but also with a per script fee. And the problem with a per script fee is that they're incentivized to fill medications. We don't want them to be incentivized. We want them to be incentivized to help us get to the lowest cost, most appropriate medication. So we pay the PBMs that we work with charge a per employee or per member per month, no matter how many drugs they fill. So now I know they don't have the financial incentive to fill drugs. So then I need them to notify me when certain drugs are requested to be filled because I want to go into action. And so let me tell you the trick that we use um, whenever we can that saves the most amount of money. If you've ever heard at the end of a drug commercial, it says, if you cannot afford your medication, AstraZeneca may be able to help. And they say it really fast and really low. Now, this gets a little confusing because there's two large umbrellas of programs out there that drug manufacturers do. One is called copay assistance. That is not what I'm talking about here. Copay assistance is when you have coverage for the drug, you have to have coverage for the drug. And their goal is to cover your out of pocket so that they get to the point where your health plan, aka your employer, aka you the next year when your rates go up, is paying for that drug at 100%. That's the point of a copay coupon. It's not to save you money. It's to make sure that you keep taking their drug and that your deductible isn't an obstacle to the the drug company getting to the point where the plan pays 100%. That's not what I'm talking about, though. I'm talking about a program called a PAP, a patient assistance program, or an FAP, a financial assistance program, or an MAP, a manufacturer assistance program. And that is specifically when you don't have coverage for the drug. And the second metric in most plans, and it differs from drug to drug, is you have to make a certain percentage above the federal poverty level. But those levels can be pretty high and cover most of America. So when we see a high cost drug pop up, we get notified before it gets filled or approved. And I go and see how much money does this employee make and is there a financial assistance program available? Assuming there is, we then instruct the PBM to remove the drug from the formulary. Now, if you're Express Scripts or Caremark and you're making $1,000, $5,000, $20,000 every time that drug is filled, are you going to remove that drug? Of course not. And they refuse to. But the PBMs that make money differently have no problem doing it. So we make sure the person qualifies. We remove the drug from the formulary. We apply for the program. The drug manufacturer calls the plan and says, hey, is this drug covered? Now they get a no. And then they ship the drug, the manufacturer, directly to the employee or to the doctor if it's an infusion at no cost to the employer or the employee. That doesn't work on every drug, but that's the first thing we go to because that obviously reduces the cost the most. And I want to say one thing that I know we, we're really not going to get into, but one of the reasons why I'm so dedicated to this is, is when I changed from being a traditional broker that's commission-based, which means as my clients' rates went up, so too did how much money I made. The first thing I changed was how I get paid. And I changed 
my payment to where I charge a transparent fee that is contractually the only revenue I can get. And I get a bonus from my client tied to doing what they want me to do, which in most cases is lowering costs. So I have a strong incentive. If I was the average broker and I even knew how to do these things, and I put you with a plan in which I could do these things because you can't do them with the bukas or the large PBMs, why would I do it? If I actually save you 500 grand in premium and that lowers your rates by 10%, I make less money. That's the whole, if you want to know why our healthcare system, I, I, my, one of the sayings I say is our healthcare system isn't broken. Many people think it is, but it's actually working exactly as it was designed to work. It just wasn't designed by employers, doctors, or patients. So it's not working well for those three groups, but it's working really well for a lot of people and brokers is one of those groups. And shareholders and large, big corporate, I call them the bigs. Um, let's go back to the Heritage Foundation at the top of the findings. 17,280 in savings per family, which is, it squares with the average family um, deduct, or the average family premium or contribution to employer paid is about 21 grand. And it's about uh, about five grand if you're talking about uh, singles. So 17,000 sounds about right to me. If you have a $17,000 raise, meaning you no longer have premiums, co-pays or deductibles of that much, that $1,400 a month buys you a nicer, a new home, it buys you a nicer school district. It can get rid of credit card debt. For a lot of my employees that have never had a first vacation because they're working poor, you know, we, we the, the hourly workers, the, the average hourly worker makes under $20 an hour in America. Morgan Stanley says well over half. So um, if you have never had a vacation before, that's pretty sweet. So can you talk about like the employees will, and the reaction that you get when they suddenly get an overnight benefit raise? I mean, a, well, a cash raise. I will give you a story, and you actually almost touched on it a second ago, but um, we uh, have a client up in Wisconsin, central Wisconsin, and they are a chain of Subway restaurants and retail automotive parts. So you're talking hourly people, right? That's their whole population, except for a few managers in the corporate office. And we put in a program in which for medications, if you allow us to source it outside of the pharmacy with the manufacturer's assistance program I just gave you as one example. We also import drugs safely and legally internationally. That's another way we save about 60 or 70% when we do that. If the member allows us to do that, then we waive their out of pocket. And I just want to point as a side note, and you said it earlier, Ron, I believe that HSAs or HSA compatible health plans are the single most damaging strategy that my industry has ever unleashed on the unsuspecting American public. And I, I, I can't overstate that. Um, because it's, a, it's, it's an avoidance to care, number one. And number two, I can't do what we do, which is waive the out-of-pocket because you can't have dollar one coverage. So you literally can't make it as affordable as possible for people to get the right care. So anyway, this woman was on an HSA plan. She had a $6,600 out-of-pocket every year before her plan picked up 100%. And she knew that just with the medication, she meets that $6,600 every year. And I'll tell you, most employees don't listen fully at the time of the employee meetings. That's why we do several. But when she went to fill her drug for the first time under the new plan, and it cost nothing, she went into the owner the next day. And he tells this story amazingly. But she walked in and said, um, Tim, I, th there has to be some mistake. I just filled my drug for the first time under the new plan, and it didn't cost me anything. And he looked at her and said, no, you, you did the right thing. And so I'm paying for it 100%. And she started crying right on the spot and literally said, for the first time since I've been diagnosed with the disease 10 years ago, my family is going to be able to take a family vacation this year. 
that's how powerful this is. And that's just a piece of how much she's saving. Forget about the fact that, you know, after the end of the first year, we save so much money overall that typically what comes out of employees' paychecks goes down. And then like Harris Rosen, we often require employers to do a dividend. And we really want that dividend to be in line with their culture. So it could be um, uh, one of our clients took all their employees to uh, Vail, Colorado on a team building trip for four or five days. And here's a good story. Another client of ours is a car dealership. And I don't know if you've noticed, but where the mechanics work, where the lifts are, it's usually not heated or cooled. They kind of open the doors during the summer and put space heaters in when it gets really cold in the winter. Well, this client put in heating and air conditioning in all the mechanic bays and said to them, your health plan paid for this. That's pretty powerful stuff. You know, I just did some math. If you take the savings, the average savings heritage foundation says that we deliver with these new plans and you multiply it times the number of months in a year, and then you multiply that times a thousand employees, that's about $17 million that goes into the economy. But it's a lot more than that because we know through federal economic stimulus, all the economic studies say it's a two X uh, benefit. Meaning if you're saving 17 million in the economy with a stimulus, it's really 34 million. So every time you're putting a plan in that's a thousand employees, you're putting 34 million into mostly the local economy, which is really, we don't even talk about that enough in our industry. Yep. Yep. And I, I want to put the numbers into perspective for any employers or even brokers that are listening to this that follow this. The Kaiser Family Foundation, if you take the total spent by a company on healthcare and divide it by the average number of employees, so this is blending together singles and families and spouses and children. The Kaiser Family Foundation is saying that the average employer spends right around $16,000 per employee per year on healthcare. Our plans, and I believe firmly that while enhancing and improving primary care is foundational, it's not all that needs to be done. And there needs to be a comprehensive, holistic approach to what happens when they need outside primary care, what happens when they need medication, what happens when they need radiology. All that needs to be addressed. But if you do it, I want to put into perspective where our per employee per year costs are. Our clients range from $3,300 to $7,700 per employee per year. So our worst performing client is about half of the national average. And the reason I want to put those numbers out there, and sometimes I hesitate because some people are like, no way, there's just no way. Um, but there, there is so much bloat and fat in the healthcare system that when you change the incentives to remove those instead of increase those, it's not hard to save. I, I tell people all the time, I didn't graduate college and the college I did go to was majoring in photographic technology. But I think that I learned everything I needed to learn to fix healthcare by ninth grade economics. It's really not that hard if you know where to look and you start demanding info and questions and answers, just like most employers demand in every other part of their uh, business. And that's really what needs to be done is the intelligence and transparency in healthcare needs to be demanded by those that are paying for it, just like they demand it in their office supplies or their logistics or whatever other procurement they might have in their business. Yeah, the trig and, and calculus, but the screeching breaks on my grades, but I sure did find an algebra and math. Hey, um, so let's talk about the, the elephant in the room that if you're a first time listener, listening to primary cure cures, you're saying to yourself, you know, these guys are smoking dope. They're not talking about the cancer, the car accident, the cardio that's going to cost a million dollars. You know, screw them. Adios. So talk about catastrophic care, the sedaris of the world. Well, how, how do you get through that problem? Well, I mean, with on our plans, the problem with healthcare is just fundamentally how it is delivered and paid for. And so, yes, we use Sedera sometimes. As a matter of fact, I'm personally on Sedera, but 
you don't, it's not the only way to do it. What you need is to change how healthcare is paid for. And, and for those of you that don't know, let me tell you how healthcare is paid for in this country. It is where the insurance company and the provider, the health system usually, they go into a secretive back room and everything they do back there is covered with non-disclosures across the board. Now, obviously, when you're a health system executive, CEO or CFO, you want your reimbursement rates to be as high as possible, right? Because the more money you bring in, the more money you make, right? That's the theory anyway. But most people don't understand that insurance companies have the exact same motivation. Uh, most people think that insurance companies make more money if they keep claims down, and that is wholly untrue. For those of you that don't know, there's a provision of the Affordable Care Act called medical loss ratios, and it says that every insurance company must spend either 80 or 85 cents of every dollar they collect in premium on healthcare costs. That means they can keep 15 to 20% of that premium for their own overhead and profit. Well, 15 to 20% of a bigger number results in a bigger number, and the only way for that top line number to get bigger is for claims to go up. So, while insurance companies certainly do deny claims, and often they deny the wrong claims, they deny claims really for the purpose of getting you to where the um, incident of care is most likely to be the most expensive. And so, um, you know, skipping over the physical therapy for the back pain and going right to the back surgeon, as an example. So the way healthcare is paid for is these two entities go into a back secretive room where they know they're going to have no one looking at this. And they negotiate, but both of them want costs to go up. So, and the only thing that an insurance company doesn't want is they don't want their costs to go up faster than their competitors because otherwise it prices them out of the market. But, um, and so healthcare, what they agree to in that back door, among other things, like no audit prohibitions, the main thing they agree on is the discount. And so the contract would say, okay, when a claim comes in from this health system, Blue Cross has to give, I don't care, a 99% discount is irrelevant because what's not in that contract is the starting price. And so the provider can mark up that starting price as much as they want to get to the net price that they want. I mean, what other thing do we buy in this world in which not only the consumer, but also the provider of that service or good, neither party knows what the cost is going to be until after the services are rendered, the health system has incurred the cost, the member has incurred the liability or the health plan has incurred the liability, now the price is determined. I mean, that's just insane. So what really needs to change, and this is why Sidera does it well on the individual and, and small group side, but it can be done in the mid and large group side, which is what we specialize in is changing how care is paid for, changing the incentives of the doctors when you can, like the direct primary care doctor, and putting in transparent and evidence-based partners, whether it's medical management, pharmacy benefit manager. So at the end of the day, that's, I mean, every CFO, if you ask them how much does a box of paper cost, they can tell you, but if you ask them how much does a knee surgery cost, they don't know. And there's something that's really wrong with that. And that's what we change within the health plan space is how the care is paid for. And this, this loss ratio, um, what they have to do if they don't hit their numbers, they're 85 or 90 or 80%, is they have to refund back to the employers in a dividend, the unused portion. Well, right. when's the last time you as an employer ever saw a dividend check from a buka? It doesn't happen. Um, so I guess, you know, I have a, a lot more questions and we don't, we've run out of time, but the most important question is, are you in all 50 states, Dave? Are you licensed everywhere? Yeah, we are. And we uh, get business through two models. One is where we work with employers directly, and we have 
probably 15 or 18 states just on that. But the other way that's given us a lot more reach is we've developed what we call our co-consulting program. And we partner with brokers and consultants around the country, much like doctors who left the fee for service and might have looked to the, the Lee Gross or the Josh Umber for guidance. Um, we try to be that guidance for brokers and consultants that want to build these non-traditional health plans for their clients. And so we partner with them on their first few cases to help get over the objections, to help build it properly, to help execute on it, and to help report on it in a way that makes sense to everyone. So that allows us even a larger reach because we have co-consultants in, in a many more states. So yeah, wherever they are. And I, I want to also codify the size group. We want to help any size employer that we possibly can. Now, I'm going to backtrack a second here when I say this, but um, you have to be self-funded or partially self-funded in order to do these types of plans, not because you actually have to be self-funded, but because the fully insured carriers that control the market won't let us do these things because it's contrary to their financial interests. But you don't have to be large. Uh, we've done it on companies as small as 14 or 15 employees, as long as the um, state regulations allow us to do it. And it does differ from state to state. But we talked about the medical loss ratio a second. I just want to bring one point home. A lot of employers that we meet with say, oh, well, we're self-insured, so the medical loss ratio doesn't apply to us. And they're right. If they're self-insured, technically the medical loss ratio doesn't apply. But let me tell you what they most likely did that doesn't make any sense to me. They most likely put themselves on a self-funded chassis with Blue Cross, United, Cigna, and Aetna on all the same claims administration platforms, on all the same PPO contracts, on all the same pharmacy contracts in which those metrics do exist. So they're being impacted by it anyway, but they've removed whatever risk the insurance company had from them and put it on their own shoulders. That makes no sense to me. So you're at, on the small and 15 employees. What do you do on the large end typically? So we've worked with them companies as actually as big as a little over a million, although that's very infrequent. Um, we've had 55,000, 25,000, 10,000, but we really like that 50 employees to a couple thousand. That's really the the where we can get in front of the right executives. They they care about their company, their own employees, um, and it really we can really do a lot of magic in that size. And I'm doing a head count because there is no association that tracks the direct contracting uh, players of the world like the Premise House and like the Nexteris. But um, how many belly buttons do you guys have currently, and what do you think you'll have three years from now? Between the the, the direct business and the co-consulting business, the last check I had, we were somewhere around approaching 100,000. Okay. Um, and I don't know if you've had Dave Chase on. Have you had Dave Chase on? Of course. Health yeah, Rosetta. I figured. So I was the founding advisor within Health Rosetta. So I, you know, next to Dave and Sean helped to create the programs and a lot of these certifications. And so I consider myself to have influence um, among many other people too, within that entire group. And we have, I think over 2 million in the whole Health Rosetta between all the advisors. So, you know, listen, that's still a small little pittance, but the more we touch and- No, it's not small. It's got to start change somewhere. And again, when you have- happy doctor, happy patient, happy employer, and then you have great outcomes and great cost reductions. That's the quintuple aim, man. That's way past the triple aim. Yep. Yeah. I agree. I agree. And, I want, and that's, that's a, you know, we didn't really talk about it, but this, these types of plans makes doctors' lives better too. And doctors have had one of the highest burnout and suicide rates of any profession for the last few years. Yeah. You just say, you know, you show them the platform they got to operate on and they like go crazy with elation. Hint, they can't believe yep. how easy it is. And I'll say one last thing on doctor satisfaction. When we put in a DPC plan, I want everyone who might be a DPC to hear what I'm about to say. Even though there's quote unquote an insurance plan, it's not a traditional insurance plan, but what I want them to know is that we, every single DPC within our plans, they have 
no step therapy, no prior authorization, no pre-certification requirements. If they say it's medically necessary, they don't need to ask permission. It is automatically covered. Now, when they send the patient out back into the regular world, we then typically put some of those metrics back on the specialist. But the DPC, if they say it's it's covered. They say it's necessary. It's covered. By the way, I've invited as a guest a cool new DPC model. I'm not sure you've heard of, but there's maybe a half a dozen to a dozen of these out there but I call them Robin Hood DPC where they charge $200 for the concierge red carpet care you get with direct primary care, you know, no copay, no deductible, no premium. And then they take a hundred of that, or they take actually two thirds of that and they buy two free DPC memberships for poor that couldn't afford it. So 200 basically buys you and you know, your family, and then it buys two other families uh, access to the, to the doctor. How, How about that? Love it. Love it. It's like Tom's shoes. When you buy a pair of Tom's shoes, they donate a pair of shoes. to. That's what they told me. Yeah. When I talked to them, they said, this is the Tom's shoe model. It's the Robin. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> love yeah. it. Anyway, super cool. All right, Dave, we'll get you on again. I love talking to you and guys like you. And if you want to bring a guest on, you have a free Carta Blanche pass anytime to be on primary care cure. So thanks for your time. And uh, if people want to find you, what's the best way? I would LinkedIn, um, David Contorno. Uh, luckily, my name is uh, unique enough that I'm really the only one that comes up. So okay. follow me on LinkedIn. A great way to message me through there as well. And if you could fly a banner over America with one message, what would that ba- banner say? It would be it would be two words, healthcare, and then the does not equal signs health insurance or health insurance does not equal healthcare. Either way, those are two separate things. We understand the difference between cars and car insurance and homes and homeowners insurance, but we intermingle the words healthcare and health insurance as though they're one and the same. Yeah, you hear we often to- people say, I've got good health insurance, meaning I've got good health care. It's not true. Yeah, that person likely is functionally uninsured. All right, man. Well, you have a great 4th of July remaining of your weekend, and I'll talk to you soon, man. Thanks, Ron. Okay, bye. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.